recognition. All right, welcome to another episode of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. I'm Rob McGordy, and I'm here with Nils Davis. Hey, Rob. Great to be with you today. So Rob and I have been discussing the best ways to do a product teardown in an interview. This is that question you get of, what's a product you like and how would you improve it? Often we get that in a product manager interview. And we hear about that question from others. It's obviously one that is discussed in the world of product manager interview discussions. And sometimes we face it ourselves, of course. And for me, at least, it hasn't been a great experience. So Rob and I thought we'd delve into the question a little bit and see if we can come up with a good framework for answering it. Now, uh, to be really clear, this is part one of two. We're intending to go over the framework of how to do a product breakdown in this episode, and then we'll do a follow-up episode where we're able to uh, actually put that into practice. So we haven't decided on what product yet, but we're definitely going to be doing a product breakdown in the episode part two, which is following up. And to caveat this to start with, we haven't necessarily uh, read or don't intend to if we accidentally quote something like how to crack the PM interview or any of those resources. This is primarily coming from our experience, both interviewing and interviewing on both sides of the table. That's right. Yeah, we, we really didn't do much research on this. And there are a lot of answers out there, and they're probably perfectly fine. But this is sort of our take on how to maybe even take this question to a higher level and to have it show how you think about products in general and how you go about approaching the idea of improving a product or whether there needs to be a new product created or something like that. Definitely. Now, one of the key things that I would suggest most interviewers are going to be looking for is a sense of completeness, an overview, and a feeling like you understand both the underlying structure of the problem and the product, as well as a clear path towards coming to an answer. Now, that's really hard to do when you're put on the spot to just suddenly come up with something. So the goal here is to walk through what we think should be the three core components of an answer, a good answer, reasonable answer, and then break down even further what currently available frameworks that you can go research separately beyond this podcast and uh, perspectives or uh, other frameworks might be available to prepare for each of those portions of the answer. That's right. That's right. So summary wise, what we're going to suggest is that you think of this question the same way that you'd approach trying to find a new feature for your, your product. If you're the product manager for a product, or if you're thinking about creating a new product, how you would validate that there was a need for that product or something like that. It's a, it's a very similar set of questions, right? Um, and there are a, various methodologies and frameworks for going after this. Yep. So actually, hold on. Let's let's actually go back and say what we think should be in a good answer here and why it's important. Okay. So for me as an interviewer, somebody who you know is hopefully sitting on the side of the table where you know they make the decision to hire or not hire, um, what I'm really looking for is an understanding of the candidate's capabilities to grasp concepts, organize them, and come to a well-reasoned answer. So for that... There's three core components that I personally care about, and you know, Nils, you can jump in and, and add to this as well. But for me, the first most important thing is to state or gather the assumptions. And that means you know, a target audience, that means uh, a revenue stream, that means a business model, or even just 
the capabilities of modern day technology, right? Whatever the constraints are and whatever the goals and, and, uh, and assumptions are, they need to be brought out to the front, partially just to make sure that your interviewer, the person who's asking the question, understands that you know what they're asking for. And also, so as an interviewee, somebody who's sitting there and hopefully answering the question correctly, you get a free chance for your interviewer to give you help. So if you state an assumption that they don't agree with, they'll oftentimes involuntarily jump in and correct you. So you get like free help getting to a good answer. Yeah, and I think generally speaking in these situations, the interviewer is, is willing to help if you ask good questions. I would absolutely agree. So then the second part of that is not just your base assumptions, but what is it that you believe the product is trying to achieve? Or in a more broad sense, if you don't really have a way to reason through that, if you state specifically what a goal or an objective should be for the product, given the assumptions, so that, again, the interviewer knows where you're going, why you're going there. And then the last piece would be a methodical way to achieve that, uh, whether or not your suggestion is realistic or amazing or, or sort of off the wall. If you're getting to it in a structured manner, it's, you know, how they say showing your work is half the battle. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think one of the key points that sort of goes along with that, uh, this, the person that's interviewing you doesn't really care what products you like. That's not the reason that they're asking. Or they may want a little bit of insight into whether you've got a, like a design-y sense of things that are nice or you're, very, you're more workmanlike. But really what they're looking for is they want to see how you think about products and opportunities to improve them, right? So what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're taking advantage of this question by, sh of, uh, by showing your methodology for finding gaps and determining if they're worth filling. And that aligns with, with what Rob just said, right? What are the assumptions? What are the personas? And that's one of the, some of the ways that you start to drive into what might this persona still be missing from this product? And is that a, a gap that's, that's worth filling? Absolutely. So one of the ways to make sure that you're preparing appropriately and, and setting things off correctly is to identify one or more of the frameworks. We're going to suggest a few, but you're welcome to take any of the, the general product ana analytic or product analysis frameworks. Um, the first one that we both identified was jobs to be done, which I think, Niels, uh, if you want to give a quick overview and then we can see how it applies to something here. Right. So the jobs to be done framework, and I'm not going to do it at all justice, and I recommend uh, you go check out other treatments about it and Clayton Christensen is very big on the jobs to be done framework, for example. But the basic idea is that you can identify outcomes that people, users want in a context separate from any product question. And then you can also determine using the jobs to be done methodology, which of these outcomes are well served, which of them are not well served, and which of them are, are also not well served and good for you to address. That's essentially the jobs to be done framework. It's essentially outcome, what they also call it, outcome-driven innovation. It's or it's based on that old outcome-driven dri innovation uh, concept of innovation. So the basic idea is you try to figure out what the outcomes that are desired and which ones are missing, and that's where you're that's where you're going to find your your sweet spot when you combine that with the ones that have a lot of value for the customer and which are appropriate for you to to create. Yep. Now. 
bringing that into a very tangible example or, you know, more layman's terms for people who haven't looked into this before, it's phrased as a job to be done, right? And they talk about hiring a product to do a job. If you think about a person doing a manual task and you could potentially replace it with software, that would be the job that needs to be done, right? The end result of the person doing some manual work. If that's greeting someone at the door and suddenly you have a geolocation mobile app that does that for you, great. You have just replaced the greeter, right? So in a simple context, identifying a person's job or a function that a person does during their job that you could replace a human or manual work with automation, that's a very, very easy way to identify a quote-unquote job to be done. Right. And then the the other canonical example, which is which I think is useful if you're just getting introduced to it, is this idea of the the job to be done is to create a quarter inch hole. It's not for me to sell somebody a quarter inch drill. The customer has a job to be done of a quarter inch hole. There's lots of different ways to do that. A drill might be the right way. There might be other ways. Right. So then another one, another way to look at the function or the purpose of a product is, uh, I think Kathy Sierra and a couple other people have mentioned this a few times is sort of the badass user and the underlying principle behind that or that framework is that everybody who uses your software has a set of things that they want to not happen and a set of things that they want to feel like happening. Um, and you know, Niels, you have a lot more experience here, but I'll just give my very quick example. Um, when a function of a product is to pr create a presentation, something like spell check is critical because what the user does not want to happen is to look stupid. And what they do want to happen is to look really good in a presentation. So simply taking those as the goals or the restrictions, it's pretty easy to identify that you should probably have spell check as a built-in feature. And you should probably make sure that everything auto formats to a PowerPoint presentation, just because they still drive towards those same two goals and avoidances. Yeah. And, and the badass is even, even more in the, in the sense of your goal is not to allow, give your customer the tools to make a good presentation, but to make them a good presenter. And ha having a good presentation is part of that. And there's other parts of it that your tool may or may not be able to help with. But that's the that's the goal of the user, right? They want to be a great presenter. Having a having a tool to help them make a great presentation is potentially part of that, but that's not their goal. Um, and so that's sort of the 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 idea of badass. Uh, there's another great s sort of framework that I like to think about as well, which is called interaction design. And the key uh, idea from interaction design that I think is applicable to this question is personal goals and practical goals. Practical goals are the ones that essentially are about getting the job done, right? So this is in the, in the case again of a presentation, this is about, yeah, I can put stuff on the screen. I can put stuff on my slides. And when I put them on the slides, they're displayed correctly on the screen when I go to presentation mode and so on and so forth. Personal goals are more about emotional responses and, and emotion, think, avoiding emotional problems and having emotional goodness. For example, um, if I have a misspelling in my presentation, that's going to cause me pain. It's going to make me look stupid. I have a personal goal to not look stupid, <laughs> right? That's essentially what you were just talking about, Rob. And it's a, it's a, it's a good goal. 
Um, and so if my tools do a good job of not making me look stupid, I like them. If they make me look stupid all the time, or if they make me do annoying extra work, or if they make me make mistakes or let me make mistakes, those are all things that are violating my personal goals. Um, another personal goal that's, that's common is I want to go see my kids' baseball game so I don't want to have to work till 8 o'clock every night. Right? I want to be able to get home. And so a, a product that means I don't have to work an extra three hours every day, and there's lots of different ways that can be achieved, um, that will make me happier and make me more interested in, in using that product. So that's another way of assessing uh, a design. And there's one other nice piece of interaction design, a, a concept in it, which is actually politeness. And you think about how all the different ways a product can be polite. And the, the great metaphor, and there's a wonderful book, and I'll put a link in the show notes, called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, which is about interaction design. And the great metaphor is a, is a good waiter at a restaurant. A good waiter at a restaurant doesn't bring the dessert menu before the, main, the menu for the main courses. And a good waiter at a restaurant doesn't come and take away your food before you're finished with it. And so on and so forth. There's all these different categories of politeness that are listed in this book. And those are all opportunities for improving a product. Um, oftentimes, those are not improvements you can make to an Apple product because they actually do a good job of that. But to other products, certainly, there's lots of opportunities to make those kinds of improvements. Definitely. And then the last section that I think is critical to discuss before we get into an example of how to frame your assumptions is a useful sort of bucketing or, or uh, grouping of some of these assumptions, and that's a user persona. So instead of saying every single time, we're going to identify this feature as people who are 23 to 27 years old, they are female, they are you know, uh, coming from a, a state school and uh, are very interested in, uh, I don't know, painting, right? You can discuss that as a separate concept and say that you think that this product has a particular persona or multiple, describe them in a sort of separate environment of saying, I believe that this product or this company targets this type of user. And then from that point on, you can just reference the persona when you discuss anything about the goals or the empathy step in design thinking. Um, it's sort of a shortcut to having to go back and figure out again what those basic assumptions about the user are. Mm -hmm. And you can also use personas to help identify gaps. So for example, if the product is sort of designed for someone who is, just, let's say young, between 20 and 40, if you, you can say, well, what if, the, what if we think about a persona who is older, maybe 45 to 55 or 60? Well, one of the things you, that you can, one assumption you can make about, a, about people that are 45 and older is their eyesight, their, their uh, near vision starts to, to decline. And so you can think about, well, if this product is, is good for, for young people, that may mean that older people can't see it very well. And so you might think about a gap being, we'd like to get older folks using it, but maybe we need to make it easier to read. Absolutely. Another example of a way to use a persona to help identify a gap. Definitely. So then the last piece uh, about how to answer this question appropriately, and you know, I think our next episode will actually decide to do a product teardown and try to use this framework in action. But for this episode, as we discuss, you know, the tactics of actually approaching this, the last piece is 
the process that you go through to come from your assumptions through the goals and arrive at even, you know, a, a totally out of this world conclusion, but a conclusion nonetheless that you think could be achieved. And one of the ways that is catching on a lot in popular media and general discussion is the design thinking process, which comes straight out of the Stanford uh, design school, as well as previous to that, it was part of uh, IDEO, which is a design uh, consulting firm. And it roughly has a few steps, but the first most important one to reference when you talk about the personas and the goals is an empathy step, which basically means you have to understand from their perspective, the target user, what it is that they're really, truly trying to, un trying to achieve. Uh, the next is defining the, the mode. So you define what not only the interaction location is, what the process is, the goals, and you know, building off of that empathy, you're moving forward towards um, really defining sort of the, the barriers within which you're going to be working. Right. So this is really where you're finding those. You're, to empath when you step into the user's shoes, you're really trying to see the world in their way. And you're, as you learn about that, you then go into the define mode to, to pull out the learnings and help you understand what the real needs and insights are from that process of empathizing and define what the, what the, the meaningful challenge is in this context. Now, in the context of looking for, a, a, for a, an improvement in an existing product, this is a relatively small step. If you're talking about a brand new product or trying something that's going to change the world, it's a, it's a big step. But, it, you know, it's, a, but it's, a, it's valuable in, in any case, right? Definitely. And then the following step, uh, which is probably close to the end of what you would do in an interview question, is the ideate stage. And what that basically is, is as they define it, is going wide. So in many cases, especially because the purpose of this question is to see how you think, it's a good idea to think out loud about potential ways to solve this problem or improve the design of your suggested improvement. And what that does is basically open up your thoughts to go, here's, my, here's the position that we're starting from, here's my framework, here's my goal. What are the hundreds of pathways that I can imagine right now to get there? And just listing them out, especially if you're in an interview where you have use of a whiteboard or a computer, this become, becomes a, a much more robust step where you can actually start listing out a bunch of ideas. And as you get there, you're probably going to see one or two that seem super feasible and much more effective as they go towards that goal. So going through the ideation stage uh, in front of your interviewer really helps them understand how much you can think out of the box. And then also helps to make sure that you're going to be rational enough to sit in a meeting and knock out some of the, the overly complex or the extra expensive or, you know, the, the bleeding edge of technology when you're primarily a consumer app. So it's good to go through that process and really show a wide range of potential solutions, but then also on your own, referencing back to the framework and referencing back to the persona and the assumptions, identify what you think the best solution would be. Yep. And I, I also want to just add, if you're a visual thinker or a good at drawing stuff, this is another great usage of that whiteboard at this point is you can do a lot of drawing in this ideation mode 
obviously you can, if you're good at drawing, you might even have done stepped up to the whiteboard for some of the previous mo modes as well. Not one of my strengths, unfortunately, but I'm much more of a word person. Uh, but that ability to go up to the whiteboard and start drawing stuff out, that's pretty powerful. If that's a, if that's the way you think, don't hesitate to do that. And usually you'll have an opportunity if you, if you need to. Absolutely. So that sort of comes to the end of where you'd propose a solution, whether again, it's feasible, realistic or, or not. If it's a product you truly love, eh, you're probably not going to be going out there and saying that they should tear half of it out and replace it. Um, but every product can be improved. So there's really no way to say, oh, I really love this product. I wish it would stay this way forever. Most of your interviewers are going to roll their eyes and, and try to get you to answer the question in another way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's really true that no problem really solves all the problems in its domain, right? Much less other related domains like the like for a different persona or something like that. Um, I think the other thing you can do is as once you've discovered a bunch of potential solutions or, or gaps that can be filled, so that's really two steps. It's finding gaps and then exploring some solutions. It might be interesting to explore why the product doesn't have those solutions in it. And, you know, we, as product managers, we all have prioritization decisions to make, right? That's one of the things we do constantly. We have many more things we would like to do to the product than we typically have capacity to do. Um, and so did the people who made the product that you're talking about. So you've come up with some gaps you've identified and you've identified some reasonable ones that would make a good, make sense for a product to solve potentially. You've come up with some ideas about how to address those gaps either within that product or maybe actually outside that product. So one of the things you might want to do is assume that the team that builds this product has thought of this already, just as you did. Why didn't they solve it, right? This is potentially another good area for having a conversation that sort of ties everything together. And in fact, we have an, a podcast episode about justifying the investment in a new feature for an existing product. And you might tie this part of the conversation into some of those ideas about how will this expand our market? Um, how will it increase our, uh, reduce our time to close? enable us to sell more, enable us to sell to a different segment, blah, blah, blah. And that's a really important point because as you go through this process, especially when you're sitting in the seat sort of blabbing on as it can often feel like, you may end up thinking by the end of the time when you finally submit your, your proposed solution, it will be very obvious as to why they should be investing time and money into it, right? But the truth of the matter is it feels like that every day once you've come to a conclusion as a product manager. But yet, even if the stakeholders are in the room with you as you move forward through this process, nine times out of 10, they forgot what happened in step one. So it's always good to be able to address concerns, even if, again, you're just supposing the reason why they might have not filled this gap yet, and prepare a concise discussion, or even, even less than a discussion, a, a concise set of statements that would support investing in this feature. Right. Now, one thing I think that's, that's really useful to take away from this conversation is that we're really talking about answering this interview question almost the same way that you would go about, it's obviously in a very compressed way, but in the same way that you would go about looking for new features for your product or new product ideas and validating whether they really needed to be solved and whether it was worth solving them. And then if you decided they'd be, they'd be valuable, prioritizing them with all the other things you could do. So 
the the thing that's interesting about this question and that this discussion with Rob sort of brought up for me is it's really is if you think of this question as just a microcosm of what you do as a product manager every day, in some ways it makes it much more approachable. Right. And it also makes it that much more important to get it right. Because when you're on the, the interviewer side, as opposed to the interviewee, a lot of what you really want to understand about the person sitting on the other side of the table is embedded in this question. That's right. Yeah. Because it is that microcosm of how you really do a product. Absolutely. And, you know, to a certain extent, different levels of, of education or background or experience should give you a totally different scale of capabilities to answer this question. But, you know, at the very least, start off with trying to organize thoughts, move forward, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did want to talk about one real practical thing, which is for all, we talked about a bunch of methodologies and frameworks, but most of these methodologies start from something like, and this is something you can use in a small domain or a, in this microcosm situation, um, what are your biggest frustrations with using this product? Now, if it's your, if it's the product that you suggested, you're going to be asking yourself that. You're going to say, what is my biggest frustration with using this product? Or even better, and this is even more aligned to the frameworks, what is my biggest frustration with doing the job that this product is doing for me? Right? Right. Uh, we'll do a quick recap to talk about the three takeaways, which are basically the ways to answer this question. And uh, we'll move on to the next episode when we have a chance to actually try to apply this in real life. So when you are interviewing or interviewing uh, to answer the question about a product teardown, which could be phrased in many different ways. Uh, oftentimes it's phrased as tell me about a product you like or hate, and then tell me a way to improve it. You want to first set up your assumptions and that can be done through the use of personas, jobs to be done, a couple of the other frameworks we've mentioned. You want to identify the goals or explicitly a job that needs to be done for the product. This can be built from a gap or this can be built from the stated expectation of what the product is attempting to do currently. And the third is to go through a process such as design thinking in order to identify a potential solution. The extra credit, of course, as Niels pointed out, is to identify why they might not have built it so far and then justify how you would attempt to, to uh, drive investment for your solution. Right. So, yeah, it's a good good framework. Hopefully this will be very valuable to folks that are interviewing for product management jobs. I know there's a lot of you out there. Um, and in a later episode, we're actually going to take a look at a real product and try to apply some of these some of these techniques that we just talked about and see how that goes for us, us professional product managers. Yeah. Wish us luck. Um, in fact, the other thing is we sometimes even will may even go further in, in a yet another episode to think about how to take these techniques and just apply them to a real life situation. Oh, by the way, that's product management. <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. We'll, we'll get some feedback to see if people like the actual product teardown and then, I think it's something we could we can go out on a limb and try to bring something that's not a product into the product world and see if we can tear it down using the same framework. Yeah, should be should be pretty interesting. Basically, we're going to be brainstorming our next startup, right, Rob? <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs>
Well, everybody, thanks for joining us on all the responsibility, none of the authority. This is a you know a podcast for product managers, product marketers, entrepreneurs, and ent- innovators of all stripes. Um, we want to help you create better products and more successful product companies and get product management jobs and learn to become a better product manager. And I want to give a thank you to friend of the show and awesome uh, musician Neat Beats for the intro and outro music. You can check them out on their Bandcamp site at neatbeats.bandcamp.com and on Spotify, just search for Neat Beats. And until next time, it's Nils and Rob. Thanks for listening.